0: Healthy Hacker, episode four. Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory, fitness, diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. Today, we've got another voicemail, and this one's from Muwan. Someone I work with at GitHub. She's a programmer slash designer slash everything else. I mean, she basically just makes a ton of awesome stuff and then makes the awesome stuff that other people make look better. So she does a lot. Uh, She has a question about the first episode of Healthy Hacker. So if you can remember, I realize this was a long time ago. We're on episode four now. But if you can remember back to a few weeks ago on episode one, I talked about why I like to use Vim. The text editor. I talked about the reasons, the my kind of my inspiration, and what I use it for today. Well, in that episode, I mentioned that the first person I ever saw use Vim, and my inspiration for starting to use Vim was my brother Nick. I also mentioned that Nick now climbs mountains for a living. He leads people up mountains all over the world, mostly Mount Rainier. Well, Muan had a question. She wonders, how is that even possible? How does that work? Hi, Chris. This is Moan. You mentioned in the first episode that your brother climbs mountains for a living. How does that work? Well, to be honest, I actually have no idea how it's possible to climb mountains for a living, but I happen to know somebody who has first-hand experience. My name is Nick Hunt, and I am a mountain guide. Oh, yeah. So today... Nick's going to join me to help answer Muon's question, and we're going to talk about more than just mountains, we're going to talk about Nick's history with computers, we're going to talk about his graduate studies in deterministic multi-core processing, the CFP process for academic papers, then we're going to talk about how he transitioned from being a computer scientist to being a mountain guide, and of course we'll learn everything we need to know to summit Mount Rainier. So thank you so much Muon, for the question. Uh, Nick's going to be on in just a few seconds, but before we get to that, let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I take a workout that I've done recently or a workout that I want to do, and I just tell you all about it, and maybe this week you'll get a chance to try it yourself. So props to Aaron Miller, who's the first person ever to share his time on the workout of the week from last week. So if you go to healthyhacker.com slash three, which is last week's episode, Aaron ran four miles in 35 minutes and 47 seconds, and he did it with a 60-pound dog, which is way harder than running by yourself with earbuds. I actually have a 45-pound dog. His name is Baxter, and he can only make it two miles before dying. So good job, Aaron. Good job, Aaron, 60-pound dog. That is amazing. This week, I haven't done the workout yet. So during this next week, I'm gonna try to get this done as well, and I'm gonna post my time in the comments rather than in the show notes, and I think I'll probably just stick with doing this For a couple reasons. One, it's just more fun. And two, I'm pretty sure that I can post a picture in the comments, which seems fun to me. So since we're having Nick Hunt on the show, who is a professional mountain guide, this week's workout is gonna include mountain climbers. If you're not familiar with mountain climbers, I have a video in the show notes. It's not a difficult movement. I'll explain how it works. You start on the ground in the push-up position. This is also known as the plank position. This is where you know, your hands or your arms are fully extended and your legs are behind you and your back is flat, you know, your neck is straight, your head's looking down, the plank position, that's the beginning of a mountain climber. You then take your left knee and you pull it up to your left elbow, you touch them or get them as close as you can and then bring your leg back. So now you're back in the plank position and then you do the same with your right leg. You bring your right knee up to your right elbow and then bring it back again. So that is a mountain climber and you just did one on each side, one on the left, one on the right. So in this workout, you're gonna do 50 mountain climbers and it's 50 on each side, so you're doing left, right, left, right, left, right until you get up to 100, so you've done 50 on each side and then you do 25 sit-ups and you're probably all super familiar with a sit-up. I have a video in the show notes for that as well The key things to remember when doing a sit-up are on the way down, make sure you hit your shoulder blades on the ground, and then when you come back up again to the seated position, just touch your fingers either on your toes or in front of your toes. So again, the workout is 50 mountain climbers on each leg and then 25 sit-ups, and that is one round. You wanna do five rounds of that. So five rounds of 50 mountain climbers, 25 sit-ups, do it as fast as you can. And I haven't done this yet. I don't have any idea how long it's gonna take, but I can't imagine it'll take that long. So good luck, have fun, and if you get a chance, post your time at healthyhacker.com/slash four. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk to Nick Hunt, professional mountain guide. He's had over 20 summits on Mount Rainier, he's climbed Mount Olympus. Mount Baker, both of those in Washington. He's been around the world, though, to Mexico, Ecuador, Alaska. He's climbed in the Cascades. And today we are able to have him on the show to figure out what it takes to be a professional mountain guide. I guess let's just start with programming because that's why I mentioned you in the first place, so it'd be awesome to hear about that. When did you start programming and why did you start programming?
1: Uh, I would say I probably started programming... I don't know, around the age of eight. Okay. And for me, when I started, it was more just about, you know, the computer as a black box, a magic box, and my inspiration was basically just figuring out how it worked and how to make it do things that it didn't already do. Actually, we uh, used to be into video
0: games a lot, too, so I remember you buying books on, like, video game programming as well. Oh, yeah.
1: The teenage years. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So that was not when you were eight then. That was later. No, this... I mean, I remember uh, it started with that old uh, monochrome phosphor monitor, right? Writing basic code, <laughs> right? Writing library software for a collection of books, right? That was dad that started that too, right? Yeah. Did you actually ever make a game? Nothing that was polished. It was uh, for me. It was more just about creating the engines and the, you know, the graphics side of it. You know, I never got around to doing story development or actual legitimate gameplay but the problems of solving the you know the backbone mm-hmm. stuff you know like the plumbing stuff that was the more interesting component for me
0: and were you did you use vim then too i i realize you can't use vim for q basic
1: stuff no i was probably up until college windows platform so i mean a lot of that stuff was DirectX based with like visual c all oh, right uh, yeah yeah and then it it wasn't until Maybe the year before I went to uh, UW, that I started using Linux more full time and doing most of my programming and stuff in in Vim and shell environments and things like that.
0: What was your inspiration for choosing Vim? Is did you use it just because that's what you were? That's what you
1: thought you had to use, or did you have a reason? It just seemed like the simplest piece of software that did what I needed it to do. Mm. Um, I remember just looking at like you know, for me, it was the the choice came down to to Emacs or Vim. That was sort of the the big debate, and I just couldn't get wrap my mind around the the control meta key combinations that went <laughs> went on for half a page. Mm-hmm. Um, I could never remember that, but Vim just seemed more intuitive when I was getting started.
0: And uh, you mentioned you started doing that and using Linux in college. Were what what were you going to college for? Computer science, computer science and math. What happened after college? After you got your bachelor's.
1: Uh, I just kind of stayed with the grind. I was doing research as an undergrad and continued with that research in the same department with the same folks and went into the master's program and then continued on into the doctorate program. But I did not finish the the doctorate. And that's the
0: fun part that I'm looking forward to talking about. That's the existential
1: (laughs) crisis. Uh, I haven't
0: done grad school, but I know that when you go into grad school, you want to pick a focus and do some research. Usually, usually you're going to be doing research on that. So, what, like, what was your focus when you went into the master's program?
1: Uh, I I just really enjoyed the world of operating systems, and to a pretty good extent, but not as great computer architecture. So, the the nuts and bolts of the actual chip. You know what makes the the processor do what it does. So
0: like when I'm writing a program I'm mu- at a much higher level. You know I use I use Ruby and then even higher than that JavaScript. So I'm talking to the the web browser, right? Right. So you so you're talking about um,
1: you mentioned processor C- design. Okay. You know, like yeah. like how do you lay out the caches, you know? Like what, what cache hierarchies make the most sense for a given architecture? Nowadays we talk about, you know, many-core processors, yeah. I mean, chips that have 8, 16, 32 cores on them. And so a lot of my work focused on how how to uh, test software that's written to run on those many cores, so debugging and testing multi-threaded code. Ah, oh, man, that sounds way harder than
0: web programming. So were you actually part of the computer engineering side of that too? like actually
1: designing the processes or more trying to write the software to make the processors work? So the actual like you know putting silicon on a on a die, all that stuff, that was not what I was doing. The work with the processor stuff that I did do was at the let's see how do we say this It's like you come up with like the logical diagram of this chip Mm-mm. and then you give it to the the computer engineer or the electrical engineer and then they make the chip. so it's we worked at like just we worked above the you know above the die level. okay. I remember I took
0: one I took one course it was a like a logic course and there was a special program and programming language I had to use. Uh, It was just like a bunch of and or gates and that. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Not even that low level. So um, the caches in modern processors, these are are like stores close to the CPU that keep temporary copies of data Mm -hmm. to make quicker access. We were saying, asking questions like, what additional bits of information would be useful to store in that cache with the data in order to help with debugging of this code? Okay. Um, so we we would say like we would take a cache and we would add these these seven bits of info and then use software to simulate a processor that has those features. Oh okay.
0: That's interesting. So you weren't just trying to understand how they work or make them work. You were your like sole purpose was to make it so they were easier to debug and uh, test, yeah. And test, okay. Like what kind of software were you writing? It sounds like maybe operating system or something.
1: Yeah. So the the overarching project was we called it DMP for Deterministic multiprocessing mm-hmm. and there were a couple of uh, incarnations of this. So the the entirely hardware based approach, you know, that looked solely at special processors and no additional software. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that work was done uh, before I was involved with the project, so that really low level hardware stuff was done by other folks in my research group. But once I came in, we looked at taking those ideas and making them sort of a service of the operating system. So the project I worked on was we called it DOS, DOS for the deterministic operating system. <laughs> and it was sort of doing everything we did in hardware and then a little bit more, but doing it all in the in the core of the operating system. So we we had to look at like virtual memory and how virtual memory was working and how the network uh, stack was working, and how file systems were working, and other forms of interprocess communication—the pipes and FIFOs and stuff—that software uses to communicate.
0: I remember you talking about you went and um, talked to some conferences about some of the research you did. Do you have like um, a paper or something we can put in the show notes or, or something like that, or slides or something?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, okay. So the the first paper uh, that I was a part of uh, is called Deterministic Process Groups in DOS. And this was presented at OSDI in 2010. Where was that? Where's OSDI? It, it changes every year. I think that year it was in uh, Vancouver, mm. Canada. Follow-up paper to that. It's called DDoS, Taming Non-Determinism in Distributed Systems. And that was at ASPLOS in 2013. So how does that
0: process work? The process of submitting your paper and getting it accepted into these conferences and then speaking about it? Because at Ruby conferences, which is something that I've been interested in recently speaking at Ruby conferences, the process is really fast. It's just maybe a few months before the conference where the organizers will release the CFP, the call for papers or call for proposals. And then if you're interested in speaking about something, you just submit one or more of your ideas and then they'll come back at you and and either say, yes, please, or no, thank you. And then that's it. So uh, you usually get no additional feedback. There's no more process. You just show up the day of the conference and give your talk. So is an academic paper and presenting that a little bit different, or are they kind of the same?
1: Well, with these papers, it's it sounds a little different. So the how it would work is every year, you know, most of these conferences are annual. Uh, they'll start off by issuing a CFP, the call for papers, mm-hmm. and when you respond to that, you give them. Basically, a complete paper. Um, You submit that usually through an online form or something. And that goes in. And these are typically double-blind reviews. So uh, a number of experts in the field, you know, from academia, industry, whatever, constitute the panel of the conference. And then based on the subject matter of your paper, it'll go to like five or six experts in that field. So if I'm doing an operating systems paper, they're all going to be more operating systems biased in their own work, just because they sort of have the background to understand the research the best. And they don't know who we are, we don't know who they are, Uh, but they'll read the paper and they'll give you in-depth reviews, critiquing, you know, if you have assumptions they don't agree with, or if you have results from experiments that they don't think are that motivating, Um, You know, you'll get a big long review from each of these reviewers. And then ultimately, what it comes down to is the binary response of recommend, recommended, accept, or recommended, reject. And then, uh, once everybody has reviewed all of the papers that have been submitted, um, they come together and they do sort of a, a big meeting where papers have advocates. So, somebody who reviewed your paper, you know, might recommend. To the panel, that this paper gets accepted, there might be a discussion about it, or they might just take that that reviewers or that advocates recommendation and accept it into the conference. But either way, um, if you do get accepted, there's typically a lot of work that needs to be done on the paper. So even though they accept it, they might have you know they might ask you a bunch of other questions about why did you design the system this way, what happens if you run these experiments? You don't really talk about the results for these, how come. And so even after your paper's been accepted, there's there's pretty extensive revision that happens. And you'll basically resubmit the paper again. And you'll get, you know, some conferences will do like a, what they call a shepherded process, mm-hmm. you know, where you're you're assigned a contact and you have like a conversation with them. So you, you know, you do a revision, you send it back to them. They say, that looks great, but, you know, what happens if you do this now? And so you might have this ongoing relationship where you're like refining this paper with one of the reviewers. Or if it's a non-shepherded process, it'll just be uh, once you get the initial set of reviews, you'll revise the paper and then do one more final submission.
0: Wow. it's a much more involved process. <laughs> yeah. That's really awesome that you get the feedback, though. So not only is it a longer process, but it just like, it sounds like maybe the the results a little bit better because you have tons and tons of feedback. Because with a lot of times with, with the Ruby conference, when you submit a proposal, unless it's a talk you've done before, you haven't even written the talk yet. You're saying, here's this talk I want to do and these are the things I'm going to talk about. And when it gets accepted, then you actually build the talk and you present it. But up until that point, there's no feedback at all. I know that there's a, a really popular conference in San Francisco called uh, Gogo Ruko, which stands for Golden Gate Ruby Conference. And this year, they're... Starting to review proposals. So if when you send in a proposal to say I want to talk about this, you get a lot of feedback on your proposal, and then you can improve it and then resubmit. So, mm-hmm. so Sarah May is the person who was who started that, I think, for Gogaruco anyway. So I, I'd be curious to see if she got that from like academic papers or if she's just doing it because she wants a better conference. Uh, when you finish a paper, do you submit it to like multiple different conferences and? then present them at multiple places? Or do you pick one that seems like the most fitting and then send it off?
1: Typically, parallel submissions is frowned upon. Okay. Um, so within your area, you know, as a computer architect, there's sort of the go-to conferences. Each year, you kind of submit all your research to that conference just mm-hmm. because it's that's the field you're in. But if you do submit it somewhere and they reject it, oftentimes there's a second conference that's a little bit you know, not quite the perfect fit, but still appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, you know, submit the same work if you wanted to to other conferences as well. But having, you know, two submissions outstanding is generally a no go.
0: That makes sense. It's similar with Ruby conferences, but people tend to do go, go on the the conference track and do their talk in multiple different places in rapid succession before videos are released. Mm. But uh, yeah, it sounds like it's people definitely do the same talks. Let's get back to um, your master's. So, did you actually finish the master's program and, and get a master's then?
1: The master's is complete. Awesome. And I, you know, have the paper.
0: So. Awesome. You have the paper. And so, you started the doctorate program, but you didn't finish.
1: What happened? This was just, you know, when I started college, uh, I never really stopped to kind of smell the roses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, everything was just straight from high school, straight to undergrad, straight to master's, straight to doctorate. And... I think it kind of boils down to basically just kind of burnout. I was nearing the end of the program, the mm-hmm. doctorate program, and I was kind of thinking about what would come come after that. And I was just a little bit hesitant that if I finished the program, I'd go about getting a, a job in the tech field, and then that would put me into a lifestyle that's, you know, it'd be very difficult to sort of change things up at that point. Mm-hmm. So kind of sat down one day and asked myself if that's really what I wanted to do, you know, not having tried anything else yet. And I decided it would be advantageous to step aside. So I went on a basically a long-term leave. So I'm technically still a student at the University of Washington, but I'm not an active student. And just to see what else would happen. And I didn't quite know what that would mean when I left. I kind of had this vague notion that I was going to make climbing a job. Uh, just because that was another passion of mine. But I didn't know in what form.
0: At that point, had you climbed any mountains? Have Or, or was it more of a climbing in the gym type thing?
1: No, I was I was an active alpine climber okay. um, all throughout my college. And so that, I mean, that world I knew about. But I just, the idea of guiding hadn't entered my mind. You know, I didn't really think that was a, a viable career at mm-hmm. that point. And yeah, so I just kind of... Went on leave and thought I would just see what happened. I started at a climbing gym um, just because that was the easiest job to get at the time. Yeah, Just doing instruction, you know, teaching climbing technique classes, teaching skills classes, climbing skills, how to belay, how to build anchors, how to repel, things like that. And a lot of the teaching that I did as part of my graduate school, you know, prepared me pretty well for teaching in the climbing world as well and i really enjoyed that aspect of it all just teaching skills and teaching techniques uh, just working with people in that regard then maybe after about six or seven months of that that's when i kind of started thinking a little bit more seriously about guiding and rmi was huge guide service right in my back door guiding in home home territory <laughs> what does uh, uh,
0: what does rmi stand for
1: uh rainier mountaineering incorporated okay
0: so RMI, uh, they are in, where are they based out of?
1: Ashford, Washington.
0: Ashford, Washington. And how close is that to Seattle, if people are familiar with where Seattle's at? Uh, it's about a two to two and a half hour drive. Okay. okay. North? or South. Or, oh, south. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, I have no idea where mountains are, because <laughs> that's towards Rainier, right? That's right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so RMI is really close to Mount
1: Rainier. There's nothing in Ashford. There's there's like five buildings that constitute uh-huh. the town, and they're the last five buildings you you pass before you drive into the national park.
0: Okay, cool. So you're working at the the climbing gym. You're teaching people how to how to climb in the gym. Um, probably sounds like mostly top rope stuff. Teach them how to how to tie knots and climb safely and stuff. And then you make your way to RMI. Because they're like the place in town that that leads climbs. How did you approach RMI and like what was the interview process? Like, how do you go up to RMI and say
1: I want to lead climbs and and how do you prove to them that you're able to do that? So their hiring process at the beginning of every year, January or so, they open up uh, for applications. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for new hires, and that basically is a a regular resume that you would submit to any job. Um, you know, work history, education, things like that and also a climbing resume. So kind of detailing your climbing experience, what routes you've climbed, what peaks you've climbed, what certifications do you have, if any, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I don't know how many people submit the applications each year, but of that pool, they call about 40 or so people in each year for the tryouts. And so the tryouts are sort of the backbone of RMI's hiring process. Um, So they take these 40 people, And just divide them into four groups of 10 and give each group their own day. So when you go in to try out, there's only nine other people there with you. Okay. Um, And you kind of are given a time and uh, a meeting place, which is the guides lounge at RMI headquarters, RMI base camp. Mm -hmm. And you walk in and it's a little intimidating. You know, they have this giant old growth fur table that's just immaculate looking and Uh, you got the nine other perspectives in your group kind of nervously walking around. And then exactly on time, you know, 8 o'clock or whatever, Mm -hmm. two of the owners walk into this room and sit down on on the the ends of the table. And it's game on. Um, Mm -hmm. Starts off just with like a group interview. So they ask a general question that you would expect to get at any new job. But they pose it to the group. Um, And then it's up to you to sort of answer whenever you're ready to answer. So it's kind of popcorn style going around the room. Yeah. Which is usually stressful because everybody has the same answers to a lot of these questions. And so if somebody jumps ahead of you and takes your answer, you have to go to your secondary answer or your tertiary answer. But everybody figures it out. So they're asking questions like, you know, what's your greatest strength in the Alpine environment? Or what's... Tell us about a time that you've tried really hard at something and failed, and how did you deal with that failure? (laughs) You know, things like that. Yeah. After the group interview, there's a, a fitness test, and for us, our fitness test was throwing on our mountaineering boots, loading our backpacks with 25 or so percent of our body weight, and running a couple of laps up this big hill in the backyard, and... It's basically a foot race. The 10 of you guys line up. They say, don't be last and start the stopwatch. And we're just running uphill. The day we did it, it was just, it was miserable. It was cold outside. We're trying out like in the middle of March. Mm -hmm. So the, the hill is just ankle deep in mud. You know, it's kind of this odd combination of snow and rain coming down actively. And we're running and slipping and sliding and just, it's just a total scene. But... 30 minutes later, it's done. (laughs) 30 Uh, minutes, wow. Thank God. Uh, And then we move into a technical skills evaluation where they give you a couple of scenarios and just want to see how you deal with those. So uh, for us, one of them was a rescue situation where we had, these all happen on ground. We're not in the alpine environment. We're just in a parking lot. But they give you a scenario like you're standing at 11,000 feet, you know, over there pointing across the parking lot there's a couple of injured climbers go and kind of throw a big pile of equipment down on the ground. And everybody's kind of looking at each other and we kind of start figuring out how to organize ourselves in the rope teams and who's going to do what and uh, kind of coordinating this mock rescue. And it's a situation where anything that can go wrong does go wrong. So as we start walking across the parking lot in a rope travel mode, you know, the evaluator will say... You know, the person in the middle, you you just fell into a crevasse. Uh, <laughs> so their rope team has to deal with that. And then the next rope team goes out and their their first person goes into a crevasse. And so everybody's rescuing everybody in the parking lot. Uh, <laughs> and then it's a, it's done. You know, we got like three people hanging in holes, rescues halfway finished, and then all of a sudden the scenario's done. So we don't really know how well we did because it seems like we failed completely. But yeah, I guess they got what they needed.
0: So they, they, just, they just cut it off at a certain point then? Yeah, okay. exactly. They just keep adding crap and then... And then it's done. And then yeah. it's done. Okay. Well, I guess that's kind of the point, seeing how you're dealing with all the crap they're throwing at you. Uh, there's exactly. There's not, not necessarily an ending.
1: Uh, uh, so that's super stressful, uh, not having like a definitive finish. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, we saved them. Like, no, we, we never even got close to saving them. We never even left our little staging area. You know, mm-hmm. everything kind of blew up there. And then they also wanted to see like general rope work in like a multi-pitch climbing scenario so you know pitch of climbing is a rope length and so in multi-pitch climbing you'll set up a series of intermediate belays you know so you, you lead up a full rope length you build an anchor and you bring your climbing partners up to you and then you start the process over again so you can sort of inchworm your way up whatever it is you're climbing. And how how far is a rope length? 50-60 uh, meters. Okay. So then uh, again we kind of are playing in the, on the flat ground. So we're, we're building anchors on picnic tables and carport poles and, and things like that. But they just want to see the rope work. They want to see you get up to where you're going to build an anchor. They want to see you construct one and then use you know appropriate techniques to bring your climbers up behind you. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at the end of the day, this all happens in a day, it's a one-on-one interview where they can ask you questions that pertain to you in particular that might not have come up in the group interview or might not have come up throughout the day and so they can sort of feel you out individually as a person and then a couple weeks later you get a phone call that tells you whether or not you got accepted and yeah that's pretty nerve-wracking did you have did you get
0: accepted the first time I did yeah do people ever try a second or third time and get accepted
1: yes they do so I don't know what the percentages are, but the the rumors are that you know it's it's typically a challenging thing to get right the first time, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people that try a first time and don't make it will come back a second time or a third time.
0: Do you think it was your your climbing experience that you had in college that helped you
1: prepare for that, or did you do anything outside of that to prepare for the interview? A lot of it was just I think my prior experience. I mean, I did I did prepare for this this tryout process in particular just by you know, reviewing systems and and scenarios and stuff at home on flat ground. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the bulk of it, you know, like that situation, the rescue situation where you didn't know what was happening next, you know, you just have to improvise. And you're successful when you improvise, when you have the experience behind it. So
0: Makes sense. Did you know before going into the interview that you were going to have to do scenarios like that, or was it
1: kind of unexpected? There's no information that they give you okay. uh, about what's going to happen, and you didn't have an insider contact or anything. No, okay. I wish. <laughs>
0: well, it sounds like you did okay, so uh, that's good. So, well done, congratulations. Um, that sounds really hard. I, Yay. Yeah. Um, after that, then, so now you're at RMI. So, how does how do you start leading people up Mount Rainier? Like, what's what uh, what additional things do you need to do now, or are you now ready to go?
1: So, once you get accepted. They bring you in for, they call it a training week. Okay. So this this training, the goal of it is not to really teach you new skills because you have those and you've demonstrated those during the interview process. But a lot of these things, there's 101 different ways to do it. Mm. So something like crevasse rescue. You might have learned it one way. RMI does it their way. And so it's just sort of to, the training week is about making you familiar with the company, uh, getting the company to kind of get used to you and get used to your personality, Mm -hmm. and then to show you their preferred way to do certain things. And then, oddly enough, the bread and butter of RMI is guiding Mount Rainier. But in order to work, you don't need to have climbed Mount Rainier yourself yet. And so part of this training is to do a summit climb with the evaluators or the instructors or whatever, just so they can give you a chance to, Get familiar with the route. you know they'll point out landmarks to you. they'll point out where the we typically would take a break on a climb. Mm-hmm. you know the hazards in this area are rockfall and icefall, things like that just so people who haven't been in the area before kind of get some of that background knowledge. Mm-hmm. After you finish this week, um, it's pretty much game on. So for me, I finished my training week and then the following day I was walking uphill with my first guided party.
0: Wow. You climbed the mountain during your training week, right? I did, So and I had climbed
1: it before personally as well.
0: Okay, so so, you, so how, much, how much time do you have then after coming off the mountain before you start climbing up again?
1: Um, your first year with RMI, uh, it, it tends to go by in a blur because their goal is to get you as familiar with Mount Rainier uh, as, as possible. And so as a first year, you'll end up doing two climbs a week typically. Um, and each climb will last between you know, two, three, or four days for you, depending on where you kind of jump in on the program. So we have, you know, before we take any team out on the mountain, we have what we call a mountaineering day school, where mm-hmm. we go out to Paradise, the parking lot area out there, and uh, we teach snow travel skills and ice axe arrest and cramponing and things like that, uh, just so when we get out on the upper mountain, we already know all those. And so... You might join in on the school day and then go uphill the following days, or you might just skip the school day and go straight to the climb. But typically, you're work two or three trips back to back in a given week. Wow, that is that is nuts. How many people are you? are usually leading up at a time? The for the DC route, the disappointment cleaver route, which is the standard route on Mount Rainier, mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll keep a three to one uh, climber to guide ratio, mm-hmm. and we'll have nine climbers and three guides in a in a particular group. Okay.
0: Does everybody travel together or is there like certain guides leading certain skilled people or is everybody just kind of travel
1: together up the side of the mountain? We adhere to the safety and numbers philosophy mm-hmm. where we st- we stay as tight as we can. That way if somebody does get into to trouble or somebody gets injured, we have other guides right there, you know, ready to to help. And how many other routes do you take up, Rainier? Uh, RMI guides I believe five different routes okay. up the mountain. Um there's an infinite number more, but just we work on those five. Do you use different ones for different seasons or are they different difficulties, or what's the difference? Um there's a couple of seasonal variations mm-hmm. um, that we'll do. So like the disappointment cleaver, the standard route. Early season, we might take a variation called the Ingraham Direct, Mm. which just earlier in the season, there's more snow on the mountain, which makes certain areas more passable early in the season. And so we might opt to take the Ingraham Icefall straight up, and it typically leads to a shorter day. Mm. But later in the season, the Ingraham Icefall melts out and it's not passable. So we have to do the full Disappointment Cleaver route. The other routes, some of them are definitely more technical than others. So the the Kautz route, for instance, involves a couple hundred feet, maybe eight hundred feet of ice climbing. Like vertical uh, ice climbing or the couts route is less than vertical. So uh it's about sixty to seventy degrees. That's that's they, still that's pretty steep. Yeah, it's it's steep enough to where it feels vertical. Mm. And so that it kind of depends on the season, how it melts out, all that stuff then, to determine how steep it is. Yeah, so that's a, that's a nice, you know, that's a fun route to climb. Wait, is that your favorite route, or do you have a different favorite? Uh, I think that is my favorite that I guide on Rainier, just okay. because it does involve, it's a little bit longer, mm-hmm. so that that's, a you know, we spend four days on the mountain uh, to climb that route, and it does have that technical ice section, and there's a little bit of technical rock in there as well. Climbing that route
0: uh, with the difficulty of it, have you ever had any, like, close calls or anything, or is it has it always been pretty straightforward?
1: I have not had any close calls on Mount Rainier. Okay. Um, it's it's strenuous climbing, mm-hmm. the Couch route, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's pretty manageable uh, by most folks. And so oftentimes the people that do the, the Couch route have a little bit more climbing experience behind them before they sign up for that program. So they're a little bit more used to wearing crampons and you know traveling on a rope, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. Never had really any close calls in that regard. Would you say that Rainier is a good first mountain for somebody if they wanted to start climbing? It's a great mountain. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it is the first mountain you do, you have to be prepared for it physically. Okay. So it's a, it is a, a large mountain yeah. um, with large glaciers, large weather systems, um, and so you can't really just kind of get up off the couch and climb it. You know, that's not really how to do it. You kind of have to train your your butt off you know put a heavy pack on walk around on some trails get used to to moving with that kind of weight on your back Mm -hmm. and then yeah i mean i've definitely have have guided a number of people who have never climbed before up that mountain um so it can be done but you do have to be deliberate with training
0: okay what and if i wanted to climb because i do want to climb i do want to climb rainier um what kind of things should i do i have plenty of time to prepare what kind of things
1: should i do to get ready to climb rainier the best training you can do is to put on a heavy pack mm-hmm. and walk uphill, and then keep the heavy pack on as you walk downhill. So, it's mostly about the physical training, then? It's mostly about the physical training. Okay.
0: If you are if you do a lot of physical stuff already, would you say that... I, I guess you should probably still try the pack. That makes sense. I mean, it's probably completely different than anything else, so... It does, yeah. Yeah. and
1: so... There's, there's, I've had a number of people that are in incredible shape, you know, folks that do ultra marathons yeah. and marathons and triathlons and uh, all these things. And there's no doubt that they're in great shape, but they're in, you know, a, a different kind of good shape. Yeah. So, when we climb, we have our loads and we walk pretty slowly. And the way we walk, we have a couple of different, you know, techniques, but sort of our primary walking system is what we call the, the rest step, which is a very, it's almost a robotic motion mm-hmm. in how we walk, um, where we keep our weight or, or our momentum back. You know, we're not leaning into our next step. We we take a quick step and we lock out our back leg and just kind of rest on our skeleton. And so we pause for, you know, half a second every time we take a step. And so that sort of motion is very unintuitive for Folks that are used to running or used to bicycling, where you want to keep your forward momentum, mm-hmm. and so being in great shape uh, is a good start. Um, but when it comes down to getting on the mountain, you kind of have to pay attention to the techniques as well. But the nice thing about hiring a guide is we're we're good at teaching you those techniques. What
0: kind of distance should I should I try doing? Should I go on like? a couple hour day hikes or, or what or does it need to be that long or what, what kind of, what kind of stuff should I do?
1: Elevation. Elevation. Is, okay. Yeah. That's the, that's the big, the big trick. So it, I don't care how long it is in, mm-hmm. in mountaineering and in climbing. We don't think in miles. We think in thousands of feet mm-hmm. of elevation gain. So the steeper, the better. Um, so climb a mountain. Well, or a big hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get in your car and drive really high and then start climbing. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it's I mean just kind of getting used to getting used to the steep terrain.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. I was thinking when you said elevation I'm thinking like trying to get high in the air, but you're talking about just climbing up a steep hill. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's Got right. It. Okay. So Rainier is probably the mountain that you've climbed
1: the most, is that right? That is right. Yeah. Okay. How long is a climbing season? Like how many months? Uh, down here on Rainier, it's about a six-month season. We go from May through October. May through October. And you're... Oh, May through September, i May through September. And you're leading climbs up Rainier personally, that whole window of time? It sort of depends. So RMI, you know, our bread and butter is Mount Rainier, but we mm-hmm. do programs all over. We have programs in the North Cascades as well as a bunch of international stuff. And so, like this season in particular... I'm not working on Rainier as much as I have in the past. Mm. I'm guiding on other mountains this year. So it sort of depends on, you know, what what program you're on. If you're on the Disappointment Cleaver program, then you're going to be doing, you know, Rainier probably 20 times in the season. If you're on, you know, we have longer programs that we call skill seminars, expedition skill seminars, that they're more focused on teaching technical skills. So how to build the anchors and how to start a crevasse rescue, things like that. And so those are week-long programs. If you're doing a bunch of those, you're going to be, you know, summiting much less in a given season just because the programs themselves are longer. Mm. What other mountains have you climbed? Have you climbed a lot of other mountains? Uh, I started this season off uh, down in down in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was guiding uh, three big volcanoes down there. And then I came back to Rainier for a couple of winter program, so mm-hmm. where we attempt to climb it in winter conditions, and then went up to Alaska for a month and guided the west buttress of Denali, and then uh, worked a couple of seminars on Rainier, mm-hmm. mostly off the Disappointment Cleaver, so I was working the Couts route quite a bit this year, and the Emmons route quite a bit this year, and I've also been doing a couple of trips up in the North Cascades.
0: And do you have a favorite
1: mountain? Or are they all kind of the same? Or, or what's the difference? Every mountain has a different personality. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the terrain is different. It requires different skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so for like the big mountaineering experience, it doesn't get better than Rainier. Out in the glacier, big ice falls, beautiful rock ribs. You know, um, it's just an incredible environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what it does not have is technical rock climbing. And so, going out to the North Cascades on something like Mount Shuxon or, uh, you know, like the Fisher Chimneys route on Mount Mm Shuxon, you get a little bit more of that technical rock. You get a little bit more of the alpine rock experience. So, I like technical climbs. So, I like guiding up in the North Cascades. But I also enjoy the big mountain experience as well. So, you kind of have to look at each peak and you know they all offer different things
0: cool man so uh what's next what What mountain are you looking forward to climbing that you haven't climbed yet
1: i like the international trips yeah. you know climbing's a lot of fun but combining climbing with international travel just yeah. kind of adds a whole new element to it yeah so i you know going down to to argentina and guiding anconcagua is something that looks like it's going to happen this winter um, And that's going to be pretty exciting. I haven't been down there before, and it'll be a, a new country for me and a, a new mountain for me. So right now, I think that's what I'm most excited about.
0: Awesome, man. So if, if people want to climb mountains and they want to climb with you, what
1: do they, they got to do? Do you have a contact or anything? Or Just go into the RMI webpage. Uh-huh. Um, you can use the information there to contact them asking about programs. Everything can be registered online. If you do want to work with a particular guide, you could always make that request, and the office usually does a pretty good job of uh, making that happen if they can accommodate that. So, I guess the uh, the
0: last thing I wanted to talk about is I heard you might be working on a book. Yeah, the uh,
1: the operating systems book.
0: So, even though you're definitely full time climbing right now, you're still you're still dabbling in the computers. Huh? I th- I thought maybe that was like on the side, but you're working on a book right now.
1: Yeah, so it's. I mean, I just, when I left grad school, it was kind of just switching the roles of hobby and job. Yeah. So when I get down off the mountain during the winters, when I have a little bit more time between climbs, I do still like to write code, and I do still like to stay active in the field. I just kind of do it on my own terms now. Do you know, like, the the abstract of what your book's going to be about? Oh, for sure. So the, it kind of started back in grad school, this idea that, eventually turned into this book. So I I did a lot of instruction, Mm -hmm. um, teaching some of the undergrad operating systems classes. And what surprised me the most was, it was a 400 level class. So I was working mainly with seniors and juniors, um, getting ready to kind of finish up and get their computer science degrees. Mm -hmm. And up until that point in their computer science education, they had been working sort of at the The Java virtual machine layer, you know, and so a lot of the details of, you know, what went on in the hardware and then also what happened behind the scenes in the operating system were lost on them. They couldn't explain what virtual memory was or they couldn't explain how a file system looked on on disk. Mm. And I I kind of found that a little surprising, but I, I also just thought that. You know these these up and coming experts in the field kinda ought to know what abstractions they're building their software on top of. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that this book is going to be aimed at people that are they're proficient developers. You know we already have programming experience. We you know whatever language you use, you you kind of already know how to think like a programmer. Mm-hmm. And the point of this book was to give you the new knowledge of. How operating systems did what they did, how they provided all those abstractions of the of the process and the address space and the file systems and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's a project oriented book that basically walks you through the process from the bootloader, you know, all the way up uh, of building an operating system. So something you can boot into, log into, open up a text editor, and and write some words. Um, and really just kind of show you how all of those abstractions are made. It's designed to be sort of a practical book. Mm-hmm. So, it teaches a theory and then it shows how this looks in implementation, but it it doesn't it doesn't get too theoretical. You know, I'm not aiming to make this a college textbook for an operating systems class. It's more of the it's more of a book for like the you know, the software recreationalist. Mm-hmm. Somebody who enjoys writing code and just sort of wants to learn something new.
0: I mean, shoot, I, I code, uh, that's my job, and I don't know any of that stuff, so it'd probably be a good book for me too, to be honest. It sounds like the the target target audience. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I'm writing stuff for the browser, you know? Uh, so I'm definitely interested in learning more, more about how the operating system works, but do you think that that's actually important to know? if you're if you're doing like what i'm doing writing web applications do i really need to know that stuff
1: you know obviously it's not going to to factor into the the day to day code you know yeah. um, the whole point of abstractions is to make programming easier mm-hmm. you know we want to be able to write code without thinking about what the cache is doing how the bits are being twiddled in the processor it's it's nice when those details can be omitted but having the background and understanding you know if you do wanna stop and think about it having that understanding of what actually is going on it can be important in terms of you know how you design your algorithms if you can design an algorithm that behaves a little bit better with your processors caching hierarchy or if you can write a piece of software that behaves a little bit better with the virtual memory system of the operating system you know i think in terms of like optimizations and performance Benefits could can be gained. Mm-hmm. So, it also seems you can make connections
0: between the way the operating system handles certain things and implement those same kind of ideas. You know, the same models at a higher level with the code that you're writing too. Like cache is a is a perfect example. Like we, we do caching all the time in web programming, and you know just the idea of how to hash something and
1: and save it in a
0: different table and stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You can the, if the problem has been solved. And the solution, you know, you have a dim- an example solution in the operating system or an example solution in the hardware. You can definitely bring that up to software stack to higher level yeah. code.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me.
1: Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Nick,
0: for coming on the show. You can find the show notes for this week's episode at healthyhacker.com slash four. And as usual, if you have any questions or comments, send them my way. Healthyhacker.com slash voicemail.